1: Hello, all, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Kendall Danine, and today I'm here with author Brad Kelly. Um, Brad's novel House of Sleep follows two very different but connected characters, Lynn and Daniel, as they both deal with the loss of a loved one. Lynn seeks out her dead partner, Michael, at the House of Sleep, a mysterious place in which people learn to remember and even control their dreams under the guidance of an eccentric and mysterious leader, the Diving Man. Welcome, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Ah, Thanks for having me. Uh, That was a great synopsis, by the way. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) If someone asks me to describe it, I usually fumble all over the place. So that was that was excellent. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's very difficult to summarize your own work when you've poured so much into it. Um, But good. I'm glad. uh, I'm glad you're pleased with it. So I wanted to get started by asking you a little bit about the process of writing this book. What maybe inspired or influenced you? Um, yeah how did this book come to be?
0: Yeah so I I guess generally my process not that I've written dozens of novels or anything but it seems like my process is sort of arranging you know personal experiences and uh, just interesting ideas uh, and sort of little notes that all feel like they go together and I'm trying to figure out what's actually the kind of connective tissue. Um, So you know part of it is inspired by my participation in, uh, at one point more than now in what I guess you'd call like the new age community. Um, and so, you know, things, uh, that's been a positive experience for me. So this book is in some ways goes off in uh, and at times a more sinister or darker direction. Um, but that, uh, dynamic, how that feels, the kinds of people that are there, um, all that's all of that experience kind of fits into the book is, you know, kind of wanted to depict and better understand that place. Um, and then, And and also experiences I had in there are directly are are sometimes directly you know reflected in the book itself. Um, I also have a a kind of what seems to me anyway a pretty intense vivid dream life. Um, My dreams are memorable. They're complicated. They're colorful. They're they're uh, you know. I, I, I enjoy them almost from a cinematic perspective. So, so I wanted to play in that world as well. Um, and I had, uh, uh, at one point written down in my notebook years ago, um, uh, something that a guy named Terrence McKenna said, uh, in a, in a talk he was giving about how, Um, if he had the reins of pharmacological research money, he would try to come up with a drug that made people remember their dreams exactly. Um, and so I kind of took off from that. I was like, okay, well, what if that thing existed, right? Um, what, what, what's the scenario that might develop out of that? So it was kind of those things. Um, and then, and then for the characters, I mean, they're, they're, you know, flashes of people that I know, um, including maybe myself at times. Um, nobody's really any one person directly related. they are kind of composites of different people that I know, um, which I think is pretty common for writers. We sort of grab at, you know, oh, this person does something this way, or they have this feeling about this or their relationships are like this. Um, and it, it resonates for some reason. So you try to find a way to get those together in a way that fits.
1: Thank you. I think, uh, so now I'm really curious what what happens in the book that's actually reflective of your personal experience? Because oh, okay, yeah, there's so well, many many okay. things that happen. Yeah, you don't so, have I mean, the that I'm putting yeah. you on the spot.
0: No, that's okay. So I mean, I've I'm I'm kind of on the record for this somewhere else. Um, uh, part of my participation in this new age community that I kind of referred to was was um, uh, ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, for people who don't know, it's a it's a it's a hallucinogenic medicine that's been being used in the Amazon for uh thousands of years actually and um it's quite an intense experience um and so some of that comes across in the book they're not doing they're not participate it's not an ayahuasca ceremony in the book but a little bit of the dynamics of that how it feels how you relate to other people who are doing it um all of that kind of stuff and 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 some of the visual experience too has has found its way into the book for sure
1: awesome that's really interesting yeah thank you for sharing that Um, So I was also wondering if you could tell the listeners a bit about what the experience was getting this book published.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, this will be hopefully interesting to people. I I think, you know, the publishing industry is in a is at something of a crossroads uh, or maybe it has been at the crossroads for quite some time. Um, And the sort of traditional routes um, have not been particularly friendly to me. Um, So after really trying to participate in that world, um, I decided to make it myself. Um, And I've put it out myself essentially and done all of the so I've done all of it myself I did the book design the cover design and the typesetting, and um and you know I tried to approach it as professionally as possible I I um paid a professional editor to help me with it um and spent a lot of time and perfectly crafting it as well as I could as an object um and so so yeah so you know in some ways I think this may have been more fun than if I'd gone through a traditional route um you know, I had to then take on any efforts of promoting myself, um, and that has led to some interesting places. I've got to meet some interesting people, mostly online, um, and and I kind of, I don't know if I would go back and go with, a maybe in the future I will, but for this, it was a really good learning experience for me. Um, and then we were also seeing kind of reports, you know, and I don't know how true they are that, you know... Um, mainstream publishing the typical book only sells like 200 copies anyway so you know the self-publishing world I know a lot of people that sell more books than that who've published their own work so it's starting to feel like the imprimatur and the validity of those publishing houses is um, not you know out the door completely but I feel like there's room for a lot of different stuff now Um, and so it's kind of exciting to be part of that process
1: yeah i think you're right i mean especially we're seeing right now i think a lot of like smaller publishers who are going under and Mm -hmm. so that sort of avenue looks like it's getting narrower so i think it's great for you to share your experience yeah with with publishing the book yourself um -hmm. hopefully it'll be it'll be good information for some listeners to
0: have yeah and if if you are listening you're thinking about doing it just remember you're gonna put it out and no one's going to care So you have to think about how you're going to make people care a little bit, at least. Right. So good advice. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, So I'm curious how you see this book fitting into or maybe resisting some specific genres.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is that's a good question. I I mean, this is something I actually do think about a fair a fair bit. Um, I sort of have. I called myself a sci fi writer, but spelled P S Y. Um, So, (laughs) um, and that's a little bit of a, uh, I suppose that's a little bit of a gimmick. I mean, you know, I don't know that I'm radically inventing some genre necessarily, Um, but I come, I mean, I have an MFA. I come from that, what I think people refer to as literary fiction environment. That's where sort of my training is and where I sort of um, learned my chops for sure. As time goes on, I don't know that I even really know what literary fiction means anymore. I'm not sure. I think it's one of these things everybody has their own definition of it. Um, And so, you know, I do have some of those conventions. um, You know, the opening scenes, the opening first real scenes where people are doing things are, I would say, in the literary fiction convention. You know, we have Lynn, uh, one of the main characters, Um, has a relationship. There's sort of this little utopia blooming and there's challenges and passion. And, uh, you've got a left brain and a right brain person trying to to live together and figure it out. Um, and there's a whole novel, I think that could have been written where that relationship, uh, continues. through the book, right? And you could just, they have a child and they, um, they go through the typical, you know, interesting, but, but typical challenges that any relationship will go through with that has, you know, people with very different backgrounds and very different ways of looking at the world. Um, but I take a pretty, tur- a pretty hard turn out of that into sort of the spec- more speculative genres. Um, there is a science fiction conceit, which is this drug that people take and makes them remember their dreams. But beyond that, it's not, really the future. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really trying to say anything about what's, um, what's coming or anything like that. And I'm really not trying to do any kind of social commentary, which a great deal of science fiction and other speculative fiction is. Um, um, I guess, you know, it kind of comes down to like, what do you think these genres are? For me, the literary, what you might call literary fiction, and again, I'm saying I don't even know what I find out what that is anymore. Um, but the way that I see that is, it's it's sort of you're taking a character that's really well defined and you're putting it, putting that character in a world. Speculative genres like science fiction and horror seem sometimes more like they're creating a world and then they're imposing that world on the person. And maybe that difference is too subtle, but um, I prefer the former. I prefer the trying to having a real character and putting them in the world. And this means that they don't understand what's going on necessarily, because that's what life's like for me. I have no idea what's happening most of the time. (laughs) And a lot of speculative fiction is like, here's the world, here are all the the boundaries of the world, here's how it operates, right? And that is always generally rings kind of false for me. Um, It's interesting, it's imaginative, and sometimes it's highly engaging, but it's not really where my interest lies. So I find myself stuck between those two worlds. Also speculative fiction often doesn't have the sensibility and the style and like the primacy of the sentence. That's really important to me. I mean, I, I like writing, I I love writing sentences. (laughs) So sentences aren't just an excuse for like a a means to an end for me. They're maybe the most important thing uh, by themselves. So I think that might push, push house of sleep more into something somebody might call literary fiction.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah, that was really illuminating. Um so let's let's go back to something that you touched on here how the book opens. We'll talk about the first chapter. So this first chapter does like as you said, it, it describes the lives and relationship of this couple, Lynn and Mike. Um can you tell us a little bit more about these two characters and how what happens to them sort of sets up the rest of the narrative?
0: Yeah. Um so Lynn and, Lynn and Mike are uh... You know, it's kind of early days of a relationship for them. Um, and Lynn is a, um, she's Lynn's sort of a right-brained person. She's a person who's interested in, you know, her dreams. She's um, she's a therapist. Um, she's uh, She has her anxieties and her issues, but she's generally, I, I think, as the story begins, a bright and optimistic and, and kind of romantic person. Um, and Mike is a little bit more hard-edged, uh, you know, careful. He's thoughtful and, 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 uh, well-intentioned, but, but a little more, uh, a little more, a little more, what's the opposite, right-brained, uh, or left-brained, sorry. Um, so a little more rational. He sort of dismissive of some of, of what Lin's, you know, more, you know, Lynn's speculations on what the nature of dreaming and all of that. And, and so it's about these two trying to find each other and figure each other out and live, and, and live together. Um, Um, you know, I think this is typical of, and there's probably a lot of relationships out there like this, you know, um, where people genuinely love each other, but sometimes don't really understand each other all that well. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of, it's about that, you know, the, the setup of it is that I'm not going to give it away totally, but this relationship ends pretty dramatic fashion. And this causes Lynn to have, A pretty intense episode of grief, trying to figure out how she's going to, you know, she'd built up this sort of utopia, and it looked like this is what was going to happen. And then it's taken away. And now she has to figure out how she's going to survive emotionally, spiritually. And she's looking, she's kind of looking for answers, I suppose.
1: Thank you. Um, so there's this moment a little later in the, in the book that I thought was really striking, uh, where you write quote today, at least there was something more to discuss than slight revisions to Lynn's stubborn grief End quote. And so this comparison between like the writing and revising process, right. And the process of, of grieving, I thought was really interesting. So if you could speak to that a little bit, I'd appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there is, there are, there is a relationship between writing, revising any project and and something like grief. I mean, you have this, this, this intense bond. And you, you know, if you watch somebody else who's going through the grieving process, you can be sympathetic because you have your own grieving processes. But what that person meant to, with say the person who has passed away, means to this person who's experiencing grief. As an outsider, you can't really understand that. Like, I, I don't know. I know what it feels like for somebody that I'd care about to to say die, I I kind of can understand what that would feel like. But I that's because I, I've lived in that relationship with them for years or my whole life. Um, Writing is like that, too. I mean, you work on this book, House of Sleep took years to write. um, And it's inexplicable to anybody outside of me. Why is it? You know, why is it this interesting? Why are you so preoccupied with it? Why? you know, it it doesn't totally make sense, even if they're sympathetic to it. Um, And then, you know, as you're as it goes from being an idea to being a final thing that you're done with, the idea you had in the beginning does kind of give way, like you don't end up with what you planned on. Um, and so there is the sort of loss of the ideal as the thing becomes an actual thing. And there's a bit of a grieving process probably there. And there's certainly a grieving process when you're done and being done is with, with a book, finishing it, there's relief, relief, And there's also, you know, the thing that I think of is like, if you were to have to take care of somebody, I shouldn't have said have to take care of, if you were taking care of somebody in their final days, and it was difficult, right, it was, it demanded a lot of attention. And it demanded, you know, you had to do things that, you know, maybe you weren't even comfortable doing um, for a person who's kind of who's headed out of this life. Uh, there would be a sense of relief at the end of it. As much as you might've loved them and as sad as it would be, there would be a moment of like, oh man, well, at least I don't have to like clean the bedpan tomorrow. You know, there would, I I think anybody would feel, and then you feel guilty about having that feeling, right? A book is sort of like that. It's like, you're finally done. You're like, I don't have to think about that all day, every day anymore. Um, But now it's also like my whole, it was a large part of my life and now it's gone. Right. So there's there's certainly that tension between those two things as as you're finishing a book. You know, um, we'll probably talk about it later. I'm working on a book now and like it's getting closer and closer to done all the time. And you definitely sense there's there's a sense of like I am read, like I'd love to be working on something else. So part of me would be right. I'd love to be done with it. That would be great. Uh, <laughs> but also it's not time yet. I still have to keep to take care of this thing for, you know, some number of months.
1: <laughs> well, I am excited to talk more about what you're working on um, now. Yeah, later on. Good. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about a more peripheral character, Nikki, and her relationship with Lynn, because um, I thought she was just like a, a fun and interesting character. So yeah, what what are what is their relationship like?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody's ever like asked about Nikki or, or pointed Nikki out to me. Um yeah, so she's she's you know in some ways you know talking from like the craft standpoint she was a figure that I needed to have Lynn against. She's sort of Lynn's last remaining friend. Um they you know and it's not that Lynn has necessarily um violated people's trust or anything like that it's just that her grief has been so heavy heavy to the point that it's alienating to people um and this is sort of a sad truth about i think how people are to each other and i'm not innocent of this by any means but when people are suffering we tend to to be honest we tend to try to avoid them for the most part uh, and I, you know i don't know if it's we don't want to we don't want. We've got enough burdens, and we we can't deal with another one. I mean, I think that's the case sometimes. But but it's just a truth that, you know, it, it, we tend we do tend to kind of skirt around people who are who are suffering. And so Nikki's like the last one who's still her friend, who still cares about her, who still will meet with her, who will still listen to to Lynn, you know, crying and saying the same thing she said two days before. Um, and you know, I I kind of wanted to th- I thought a lot about what sort of person would that be and nikki is uh she's she's like a beam of she's like a beam of love light right she's she's full of love she's not right all the time she's got her own foibles and maybe taken some missteps in her life but but she is really trying to be um you know a figure of love and light to at least lynn and probably other people in her life too so yeah
1: I'm a big peripheral character buff. So okay, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, they're interesting because they're often, you know, to like talk shop, they're often plot devices, right? It's just, you need a person to explain this thing or give them this thing or whatever. Um, but if you let them just be just that, then they're not very interesting. They have to be alive on their own, even if they only get a few pages.
1: Yes, I think that's why I enjoyed her. She seemed like yeah. a like a whole person to me.
0: Oh, yeah. oh good. I'm glad. Um, that makes me happy because, like I said, very few people have mentioned her before. So <laughs> that's great.
1: Um. So chapter three introduces us to Daniel, who um, I think is like my favorite character. I maybe that's like bad to say, but I should love them all equally. But um, Daniel is just like so interesting. And I feel like I've never read a character like him before. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, he's this, he's this young guy who has all of these sort of like physical issues and this very tumultuous relationship with his father um and I'm just curious like you know if you if you can tell listener a little bit more about him but also like you know was there an inspiration for this character how did you sort of come up with him
0: sure yeah yeah I mean Daniel um just a I guess a couple more details and maybe this is sort of how I see him is you know he is you're right he's a young guy he has some like Autoimmune disorder. He doesn't really know what it is, and part of the reason he doesn't know what it is is because he lives isolated on this farm with his his father. His father, who's suffering some kind of intense religious delusions, um, and has sort of isolated his son. Tried to isolate both of his sons, but one of them ran away, and so now, so now, poor Daniel is is there just by himself. Um, But he's an intelligent guy for all of the, you know, despite the fact that he has basically no education and really nothing, nothing to, to nothing to use any intelligence on. Um, so he's sort of stunted development wise. Um, and you know, a big part of the book is about him getting out of that situation first physically. And then, you know, as the book goes on sort of psychically, I suppose. Um, and yeah, there's, I mean, there's some inspirations for it, um, One is uh, I was close to somebody who had um, very advanced, long-term Lyme disease or some sort of tick-borne illness, and it was very mysterious, and it was um, seemingly impossible to treat. And the symptomology was all over the place. um, And uh, it, it felt, you know, there were sort of medical scientific explanations for it, but it felt sometimes like um it would never sort of be explained and and some of the symptoms were kind of similar to what what daniel experienced and just the just the weight of that and the complexity of that um you know having plans to try and do something daniel does flee the farm but like barely f- from a physical standpoint he can barely he can barely you know walk so um it's diff- it's very difficult for him so um i i liked I liked say I liked it. I mean, it's, he's a, he's a very unfortunate person, but that story I wanted. You know, you put somebody sort of at the bottom, and then then the story is about them growing out of that, overcoming that in some way, um, and not it doesn't you know not in heroics like uh, you know riding into battle type heroics, but sort of the everyday kind of heroics that I think most people are engaged in just sort of overcoming the, the failures of the day before sort of thing. It's an exaggerated version of that, I suppose. Um, other things that inspired me about him are just stories, similar kinds of stories out there in the real world. Like um, maybe your, your listeners might not know there's a, there was a musician and I use this term lightly named Gigi Allen back in like the eighties, who was like, and this is not a recommendation to listen to Gigi Allen. It's terrible. But part of his uh, part of his upbringing was his father believing that he was Jesus, that his his father believing that G.G. Allen was Jesus and this insane religious cult, like a cult of two or three people situation and just how terrible, terrifying and confining that is to have to live under somebody else's kind of delusions. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah he's just like such a, such a tenderly rendered character, I think, which is like really lovely because he is so vulnerable, but like so complex. Um, yeah. I just thank you. loved him.
0: Yeah, um, thank
1: you. I was, I was sort of struck like halfway through the book about like, well, well you have this line where, where you, you're, you say um, on page 39 that um, parents are trying to teach their children how to be. And I think like, as I, after I read that line, I was like, prime to sort of really think about all of the kinds of like parental figures and parental or you know sort of um maybe not literally parental but parental-ish relationships in the book um and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like yeah what how important in the book is this sort of idea of parents trying to teach their children how to be
0: yeah I, that's a really good question um you know And you ask that, and I don't even know if it was something I was sort of conscious of in the development of it, but it definitely is, you know, um, the diving man is sort of a father figure, but also how he gets onto the page and into the story is sort of through his relationship with his father and Daniel and his father, obviously. And, 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 and Lynn, her father barely is on, is in the book at all, but, but, um, you know, part of the story is that she's going to be a parent and it's sort of cut off and she's sort of done the things that one might need, what one might feel they need to do to become a parent, right? She's, she's got a a career and she's in a, she's in what is seemingly a, at least a relatively stable relationship with somebody she loves. And, you know, it seems like, okay, all systems are go to become a mother and it's cut off. And there is, you know, I do think part of the sort of narrative of the story is like recovering from the trauma of that being cut off. Right. Um, you don't, it doesn't happen. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I do think, you know, I think this book is about people overcoming themselves to a certain degree. And I think, you know, that process is a process of kind of reparenting yourself um, you know, every parent, I think every, even the best parents sort of fall short in some way that it's almost like inherent to being a parent is that you're not going to do it great. <laughs> even the best of them, it's like there, there's some, even if they're trying really hard, there's always, there's always missteps and, and miscues. And as we grow up, we have to kind of sometimes go back and patch those holes a little bit and, and, and figure out, you know how this pattern led to me behaving this way. Um, And so, yeah, I guess there is a lot about parenting in there and there certainly is a lot about um, how, you know, how, how difficult a parent can make it. Daniel's father, I mean, makes poor Daniel's life torture. Um, And he, Daniel's father in his weird delusions probably thinks he's doing, thinks he's doing the right thing. If you were to ask him, you know, are you a good father? And he's sort of like, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, save my son from evil of course I'm a, you know of course I'm a good father um but yeah yeah that's a, it's a really I like looking at it through that lens
1: my my graduate education thus far in literature studies has, has paid off <laughs> I
0: love it I love it
1: um so returning to Daniel for just a moment he has this immense love of language um which I think you might share based on based on reading the book so I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit
0: yeah, yeah, it was probably yeah, it was probably a little bit of a cheat so that I could I could, you know, be on the I could play with language the way that I wanted to. Yeah, I mean, so Daniel's isolated, his world's very isolated and he has very few references to the outside world. He's allowed to watch television every once in a while, but he's only allowed to watch local news. So his perspective on the world outside the farm is what it would be if you only watched like if it bleeds it leads local news. <laughs> um and the other thing he has is the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, So he has all of the words. Um, And I I think it was David Bowie, and that could be apocryphal, but somebody said at one point that, you know, I read the dictionary when I was a child because I thought it was a beautiful poem about everything. And this really got me thinking, okay, well, if you have... All you have is the language and you don't even have the the other references. You know, he doesn't have historical references, really. He doesn't really even have much of a memory because his life doesn't change that much from day to day. All he really has is the words and there's something very poetic about that. Um, and so I think there's been a time or two I've gotten a criticism from somebody about the fact that the book uses big words. And usually what they're referring to is something... Daniel observed using his kind of slightly odd, uh, diction. And what I've kind of said is like, it actually doesn't matter what those words mean in the dictionary. It's, it's, it's how they feel to use them to Daniel more than it is what those words actually mean oftentimes. Um, and that's true for me too. Like, obviously the meanings of words are super, are very important, but they also have a feeling to them that is, perhaps more interesting to me. Um, I was literally just yesterday watching this thing, this interview with uh, Jorge Luis Borges, who's talking about the difference between English and Spanish and how English has all of these, because it has a Saxon component and a Latin component, there's two, at least two words for every concept and how they mean different things, even though we try to use them to say the same thing. And I'm, I'm fascinated in those, those meanings that can't be captured in the definition. Right, those subtleties that are partially based on your own experience and and partially some kind of synesthetic quality um that they yeah they actually feel like something and so i, I daniel's hyper aware of that because all he has are words
1: i think that i for me that came through very quick very um clearly it was almost like he was like you know holding a worry stone or like rosary beads or something like that right like there's There's a feeling, a bit of like repetition, a sort of poetry that it seems like helps him navigate and make sense of the world and himself in it, um, which I thought was, yeah, just really beautifully done. And as a, as someone who was definitely a dictionary reading kid, (laughs) I was like, yeah, I get this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I look up words all the time. And it's funny if you're like enough sort of obsessed with it, I start looking up Def I look up a lot of definitions for words that I think I know what they mean just like what is that? What does that act? What do they say that actually means because when I use it what I'm saying is this, you know I do that all the time. So yeah, very very it was it was very cool to and it also got me into you know I, I didn't necessarily know every word Daniel knows uh, There were some that I kind of had <laughs> to figure out, you know, so That's cool yeah
1: um okay so who is the diving man can you tell us a little bit about this mysterious uh paternal sort of figure
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so he's uh he's a little bit uh he's the the sort of guru the cult leader the shaman of the house of sleep uh he's um yeah how would I describe him he's a little bit of Willy Wonka he's a little bit of Tim Leary um he's a little bit of Charles Manson maybe. Uh, and yeah, he's he's a sort of one of these enigmatic, sort of charismatic people that sort of draws draws others to him, um, uh, in almost inexplicable ways. He never wears a shirt at any point in the entire book. Um, he's sort of this very fit, but you know, kind of late middle late middle aged man um, who he's called the diving man because every day he dives off the cliff, off a cliff into the, into the water. And this is sort of part of his meditative process. Um, And he's ostensibly trying to guide people through this dream experience in which they're remembering their dreams. Um, He came to me. This is, I mean, this is, he came to me in in a dream. I had multiple dreams about this guy. Um, And, I've knew that I had to use, I, I much more refined him on the page than he was in that he was, he was sort of a more of a presence in, in these series of dreams that I had. Um, but I knew that he meant something. I knew that he needed to be out there. Um, and yeah, he's one of the most, he's one of the most fun people that I've, or characters I think I've ever kind of come up with. I don't even know if I came up with it, but, um, yeah, very dynamic. He has his own past that's not that's similar to Daniel's in some ways, um that he's definitely overcome. He's uh, you know, he may have some kind of gift uh or set of gifts about at least how to manipulate people. Um yeah, yeah, he's, he's interesting. He has, I give him time in the book, these interstitial passages that aren't quite chapters, because they're not really scenes, but it's just him. It's almost like you're reading out of his journal. Um, and I I think those are, those are a way that I, the, the book is kind of paced by these. Um, and he's, he spends quite a bit, he's on the page quite, a, quite a lot as well. And Daniel's very drawn to him because Daniel needs a father figure still, even though he's he's left his own behind. Um, and Lynn doesn't really know what to make of him for the most part. Yeah.
1: He is a very fun character to read. I don't know that I would want him to visit me in my dreams.
0: <laughs> no. No. But, yeah, you he's, know, not, I'm he's glad not that he nice. nice.
1: With yeah. you yeah. so that you could, yeah, bring us this character. Um, so without giving us too much giving too much away, what can you tell us about? what the House of Sleep is and, and what goes on there.
0: Yeah, so the House of Sleep is, it's an actual place. It's a uh, Victorian mansion up on this plateau in the book. Um, and, you know, it's not clear exactly how it has come into the Diving Man's possession. But um, what what's going on there is the Diving Man is running a sort of uh, retreat workshop slash retreat slash commune really where these people have all been drawn uh to take this drug that we mentioned in the beginning in the book it's it's called one and what this does is it allows you to remember your dreams as clearly as you remember the day before um and this gets um you know for as cool as that sound might sound what happens for them is you have these people staying there and doing it night after night after night and there's a deliberate attempt to narrow the day material that's being referenced i mean if people i'm sure know your dreams are often made up of images that come from your day your day your day life <laughs> and um reshape into new things right or or elements of of them are used and you'll take a face from 10 years ago somebody you knew and they'll go on a different person um and the diving man is very carefully trying to conscript this it seems like the people who live there have started to occupy the same dream space at times um and everybody is drawn there for different reasons um they're looking for a different kind of answer and this is kind of again something i saw in the Um, in the new age community, you have people who have, um, are looking for different sorts of answers. They're looking to overcome trauma. They are, um, you know, deeply spiritual people who have maybe felt, um, out of, put out by traditional religions for one reason or another. Um, they're people who are, you know, some people are just looking for, you know, to see how weird the world can be, um, other people are, are are looking to heal their hearts. You know, there, there's it sort of takes all kinds in that in that world. So when Lynn and Daniel get there, they're part of this community, um, and it takes a while to really become part of that community and not just be a visitor. Um, so you have all of those kinds of d- dynamics at play. You know, the question is sort of is this becoming is the house of sleep a cult is it a is it good for people is it uh is it actually helping is it just an escape um is what's happening real um and as more time goes on there the more uh, hopefully the more uncertain reality becomes um you know if if you can remember your dreams more as much as your day and your days never change it starts to become a question of what is your real life so yeah. yeah,
1: that's a great way of putting. It, great way. Of
0: putting it. <laughs> good. Good.
1: Um. All right. So let's return to what we mentioned earlier. What are you working on currently? Where can people find you and your work?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um. So I have a couple of things going on right now. So um. One thing is I have a podcast as well called Art of Darkness. We do pretty in-depth profiles on artists. You know, uh, their life, their work. Um. It's called Art of Darkness because we tend to really lean into the sort of the dark side of creativity. We all know creativity comes oftentimes for some people with, uh, drug problems or trauma or mental problem, whatever it may be. Um, some of it's internal, some of it's external, uh, you know, war, illness, you know, all kinds of things. Um, so we have episodes on, we just did an episode on Borges and, uh, we, do, we tend to do quite a few writers because both me and my co-host, the playwright, Kevin Kautzman, are both writers, so we tend to focus on writers a little bit more. You can find that at artofdarkpod.com. Um, and I am now working on a book that is called, for the moment, That Which Is Within. It is... I need to come up with a better elevator pitch for this. Um, most of it is set in a sewer. Uh, in my um, day job... Um, as a civil engineer, I have spent a lot of time in sewers, uh, which is I, probably a fairly atypical experience. Um, and within this environment, you have a sort of a, a crew of, of guys who um, end up in, involved. They pass through, I'm trying to think the best way of putting this without giving it away. The sort of Twilight Zone gimmicky synopsis is they pass through a portal and are now um, trying to find their way home. Um, hopefully it's, it's richer than just that. Um, but it's, it's sort of supernatural fiction, mostly set inside of a sewer. (laughs) Um, but they have, there's, there are many adventures. Every time they climb up, they're in a different world. They have to try and figure it out. And they're all trying to, they're all trying to find their way home for, for different reasons. Um, it's been a lot of fun to write. I've had to do um, a surprising amount of research on things that I didn't think I would. Um, which is which is fun to me as part of the process. It's 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 um you know, I imagine if you go to any writers like search history, it's very it's a list it's a very heterogeneous list of unusual things. <laughs> um so, you know, I certainly ha- I am certainly guilty of that um on this project. Um it's coming together. I think, um, I'll be hoping to find a route for it to, to, to be out in the world early 2024. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, much, much work to be done on it. Um, yeah. Um, you can find me. Um, I also have a, a bunch of short stories. Um, uh, my website, com. That's K E L L Y E S Q U E.com. Um, And I also am working on very slowly, painfully slowly, uh, a series of um, pieces on the tarot. So um, three to five page, uh, I don't know what to call them essays. They're not quite essays. They're sort of explorations of each individual tarot card over the next who knows how many years. I'm going to try and write one about each card in the deck. Um, It's a school of thought I'm very interested in I have some tarot cards sitting out right here right now um, and I find it utterly fascinating I think for um, people who are writers or people who are interested in literature uh, if you approach it the tarot as a very strange book you will find that you could spend years studying it all of the references and all of the imagery and what everything means and so I'm doing that on the page yeah
1: that sounds super cool. Uh, yeah. I'm excited to check it out yeah, um, yeah. as well as read yeah, your next novel, hopefully early next year. Yeah. So thank you so much, Brad, for being here. I've really appreciated this conversation. And yeah, I hope awesome. that our
0: listeners will, will check out your great work. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.